All right, changing gears. Now we're going to text, all right? We're continuing the text series. Um, today is going to feel different. We're changing gears a little bit, okay? So get ready for change, ready for variety. Uh, we're going to continue to try and tell the story of the Bible, and that helps us to understand the stories that are in the Bible more fully. And today, we're going to turbo through. We're going to cover way more of the timeline, um, more of this story of the Bible and how it got to you and, and, and the who that was involved in actually getting it to you. So we're going to examine the living Word of God. It is a collection of ancient manuscripts, and it is also something so much more. Why is it important? Because so many people today, and maybe you're in this camp, maybe this is where you sit right now, many people have walked away from the faith, many people have walked away from Christianity because of misunderstandings about the Bible, what it is and what it is not. So many people simply don't understand God's Word in its text format. You remember that Jesus is called the Word of God? He's called that in Genesis and in the Gospel of John. The Bible is also referred to as the Word of God, like it is in the book of Hebrews. The challenge today for us isn't access to the Bible. That used to be a really big issue, as we're going to see. But I, I mean, the Bible's available. You can get it kind of anywhere. And people that are not followers of Christ, they're able to get Bibles. But access isn't really what we're trying to accomplish anymore. That, that problem isn't solving the problem of getting people engaged. Having it doesn't do something. It's not magic. Getting engaged with Scripture is what we need to. We need people to get connected to it, and that's really the challenge. We don't need more access. We need more engagement. We need more concern in manifesting it, to living it out instead of having it. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. <coughs> For the Word of God is living and active, sharper, than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The truth, gathered together, now forms a book, but it's still alive. It's not just words on a page. It's living. It's transforming. It's powerful. Powerful and, and alive in, in so many ways. And yet, even though it's alive, so many people neglect God's word. We've been talking about the story of the Bible for weeks now. And so, how many of you own a Bible? Even Church Online, you, you, you can say, how many of you own a Bible? Yeah, thank you. All right, a couple of you are still awake. How many of you own two Bibles, two or more Bibles? All right, we got a couple there. How many of you have a table full of Bibles, right? Me, <laughs> I do. Is it just me? Is there any other Bible nerds out there? You got a whole stack of Bibles. How many of you, though, be honest, over the last 30 days, how many of you have read your Bible 10 times? 10 times in 30 days. 20 times in 30 days? What, what, what happens in there? We, we, we have God's revelation. It's so accessible, and yet so many of us still neglect it. We allow its value to diminish. Psalm 119, 16 says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. This word neglect, it comes from a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is shakach. We get our English word, shakakan, from it. You know that word? Shakakan, everybody, everybody, shakakan. Someone's listening. All right, good. 80s jokes. Woohoo! All right. 
Sakah, it means to lay aside. It means to forget. It means to take for granted or to neglect. I will delight in your decrees. I will not lay aside your word. I will not forget about your word. I will not take for granted your word. I will not neglect your word. Why is it that so many people today still neglect God's word? They just don't care. And it's, I think part of it's probably because they don't understand what it really is and what it really took for you to hold that Bible in your hands. And so today, like I said, we're going to run at breakneck speed through the story of the Bible, the history of the Bible that brings it closer to your world and what happened to get this here now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Thousands and thousands of years ago, somewhere between 1400 and 1500 BC, God himself began writing what would much later arrive in your hands, the Bible. He wrote the Ten Commandments, carved it right into stone tablets on, on top of uh, Mount Sinai, put it into an ancient form of Hebrew. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, met him up on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses brought them down, shows them to the people. Here they are. He goes, okay, sign here. All right, here you go. Like the Amazon guy, what they used to do at least. The very few, the very first written words of God. And Moses continues writing the history between God and his chosen people, Israel. And then years later, the very first scriptures grew into the first five books of the Bible, and that's known as the Pentateuch. Can you say them with me? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Good for you. Now, for thousands and thousands of years, Scripture was recorded on animal skins that were called scrolls. A scribe might use the animal skin of a deer or a cow or a sheep, never a pig. A pig would have been unclean, and that would have been totally inappropriate for God's word. Pigskin has now been relegated to footballs. Take from that what you will. Here's some uh, party chatter. The next time you get to go to a party and you want to talk about this, you say, when the entire Pentateuch is found on a scroll, it's called a Torah. And a Torah scroll, would, uh, when it was completely unraveled, would be about 150 feet in length. The scroll was so long that it would take an entire herd of sheep just to make one Torah scroll. And that makes it pretty expensive, pretty hard to come by. And by approximately 500 BC, the 39 ancient manuscripts, or books as we like to call them now, those 39 ancient manuscripts that we know today as the Old Testament were completed. And they continue to be preserved in Hebrew on scrolls. And this collection of scrolls contains history, stories, poems, psalms, proverbs, wisdom literature, prophetic literature, and apocalyptic literature. All right? I said we're going to speed up. If you want to have more detail about these things, go back and listen to the previous five episodes. By the end of the first century AD, I told you we were speeding up, right? The New Testament's now completed. And it was reserved, reserved, preserved in the Greek language on papyrus. And papyrus, before it was a font with very little respect, was a thin paper-like material made from crushed and flattened stalks of reed-like plants. Papyrus, 
There we have the New Testament. Zooming ahead. Did I mention we were going to go fast? 367 AD, the Bishop of Alexandria, a guy by the name of Athanasius, wrote his famous Easter letter. And in it, and this is a really big deal, okay, he listed for the first time ever in recorded history all of those ancient manuscripts scripts that you read today and you call the New Testament. Then in the year 393, the African Senate of Hippo approved all of those books that you find listed in your New Testament today. That's when it existed. Proverbs 30, starting in verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Six, do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. By the year 500 AD, the Bible had been translated, this is going to blow your mind, into about 500 different languages. People were all over, so thankful because they could read God's word in their own language. But then something happened. Something very unusual happened. And the music in the background, the soundtrack changes and now it's ba 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 ba. In the next century, the next 100 years, by the year 600 AD, the Bible was only allowed in one language. Why was that? Well, the Catholic Church of Rome at the time, the only recognized church in the land, they were powerful and they were wealthy. And they issued a decree that no Bible in any other language was allowed. If anyone was found if anyone found a Bible in any language besides Latin, the person holding the Bible could be executed right on that spot. No trial. So, you may be wondering, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, there was a rapid descent, and the Catholic Church became very, very corrupt. The priests were the only ones educated in the Latin language so that the common person could never, ever read God's Word. And well, that gave priests ultimate power. And that never goes well. We work hard into one to make sure that you are given access to the biblical passages in question. And we encourage you to read along, to read ahead, to read before, to read in context, to talk with each other about it, to talk with us, to talk with me about it, to ask questions. Please get engaged by all means. The priests then could teach only the parts that they wanted to, and they could also throw in different things that weren't even in the Bible at all. And this became very common. Things progressed. And things became even more shady as they go forward. It was common for a person to pay for indulgences. In a sense, they were like uh, buying, paying for forgiveness. If they sinned, they'd pay a certain amount of money. And then the priest would say, well, because you've paid, now you're forgiven. And the Catholic Church also taught about a place called purgatory a word that's not found in Scripture, and they said, but if your relative dies, they're going to go to purgatory. It's, it's a holding place. And you really, it's not a nice holding place. You don't want to be there, right? But for a certain amount of money, you can purchase the freedom for your relative from purgatory. In today's world, it's kind of like uh, grandma dies, all right? And, and they go, okay, do you really want your grandma in purgatory? Ninety-nine, ninety-five. You could buy grandma a ticket out of purgatory. And the priests used this forced ignorance. And between the, the years of 400 AD and 1400 AD, they deceived the masses for a thousand years. And that period became known as the what? 
What do we call that? The dark ages. Yeah. Psalm 139, 12. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. Now, you may be wondering, how did the church break free from this long season of dark and horrible corruption? Yes, how did the church break free? Well, and the answer is simple, and I'm so glad that you're showing this real interest in history. Once the Bible, once the truth of God became, uh, that was contained in Scripture, once it got into the hands of the right people, um, God used those people. He used the truth, the Holy Spirit transforming people by the renewing of their minds. God brought about through people the very necessary reformation of the church. Here's kind of how it happened. In the year 563, there was a guy named Columba. You may have seen his television show, right? He's the guy with the, the trench coat on, always with the head tilt a little bit. Oh, right, sorry, that's Columbo. We're talking about Columba. Columba was a guy who started a secret Bible society or a Bible school uh, where they could faithfully teach and they could learn from the scriptures. This, this group of people became the remnant on earth where God's word was taught faithfully century after century. The students were known as Colbys, and that means certain stranger. They were strangers in this world. They were citizens of another world. They were citizens of the kingdom of God. For 700 years, the Colbys would disciple each other. Back and forth, they would study God's word. And it was out of this group that God raised up the right people to bring about the beginning of the Reformation. So in the late 1300s, one of these guys, a guy that you might have heard of by the name of John Wycliffe. Now, some people like to say John Wycliffe, but this guy, God used to do tremendous things. He was the very first guy to translate the Bible into the English language. And when he did so, all of a sudden, all these people who before couldn't read Scripture didn't know what was there, they're now able to do so. And at this time, some say it took about 10 months to, to, to get that Bible created, that one translation done. 10 months, people would be working to try and get the Bible translated into English. <coughs> Not mass-produced, individual copies. But he was faithful in spreading God's word. But unfortunately, he was also called a heretic. And the Pope was so disgusted by this guy that 44 years after his death, the Pope orders Wycliffe's body to be dug up uh, his bones to be destroyed and then spread across the river so he could not be uh, buried in sacred ground. Some people say that Wycliffe was actually known as now the morning star of the Reformation, that he was the one that got the ball rolling to start that very necessary Reformation of the church. Now, Wycliffe didn't work alone. He worked with another guy. One of his disciples or one of his students was a guy named John Huss. And Huss was equally passionate about getting the Bible into, into, into as many people's hands as possible. Well, unfortunately, John Huss was called a heretic also, and he was burned at the stake. Get this. What do you think they used to start the, the, the fire um, around the stake? They used his teacher, Wycliffe's Bibles. They spread all the Bibles around him and then lit the Bibles on fire to burn Huss at the stake. But it was Huss's final words that became known as a prophecy that, that, that helped direct the future of the church. And at the stake, just before he's burnt, these are the last words of John Huss. He says, 
in the next 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. And that's exactly what God did. In the year 1517, God raised up a man named Martin Luther, who was so fed up with all of the corruption in the church, he actually believed that God was calling him to help reform that church. It was on All Hallows' Eve that Martin Luther took what's become famous as the 95 Theses. It's a document where he wrote out 95 claims of heresy against the church. He took these 95 Theses and he went to the church door and he nailed it right on to the outside of the Wittenberg church door. People now describe that as the knock that was heard around the world. And God used those accusations of of heresy to spark what's become known as the Reformation, the Protestant church. And God used Martin Luther to take the Bible and to translate it into the German language. He then took the recent technological communication invention called the printing press the invention of Gutenberg, and he leveraged it to now get the Bible into the hands of the masses. Do you know where we are right now? Where we stand right now is at what might be the next great moment in history. We stand in the doorway of the digital revolution, the greatest communication shift in 500 years, a shift that has only been sped up and intensified by this recent pandemic into one. That's where we now live. That's the time that we have been called into. And we press forward in earnest pursuit on this road trip uh, in pursuit of Christ that the world may know, that the world may know that God loves them, that Jesus died for them. Do you see where you are living in history? It is unprecedented for anyone who is alive before now. What is God calling you towards? What's your next step? You know, don't be afraid of this. You were not called to merely survive. You were called to thrive, to be in the mission that God is calling you for. Okay. Meanwhile, back at the story. Of course, Luther was called a heretic, right? People wanted to kill him, and so he spent the majority of his life on the run. But God used used him to spark major changes in the church and to get the word of God into the hands of the masses. Right about the same time, there was another guy an Oxford professor, and his name was John Coley. And he translated the Bible into English for all of his Oxford students. Not only did he do that, he also taught the Bible in English at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. For, believe it or not, this is going to blow your mind, they would say that 20,000 people would pack themselves in, into the cathedral simply to hear the Word of God in a language that they could now understand. Not only were there 20,000 people in the building, but it's said that there were as many people outside the building waiting to get their turn. Why? Because they were hungry. They were desperate. They would do anything simply to hear the Word of God. And what's sad is that beautiful historic cathedral still exists today. But instead of over 20,000 people there a weekend, They minister now to about 200 people a weekend, and most of those are simply tourists. Psalm 119, 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. In the year 1526, there was a guy named William Tyndale who befriended 
Martin Luther. And God used William Tyndale to print the very first English Bible. That's the good news. Bad news is anyone who was caught with this illegal Bible would be executed immediately. But you can only imagine the demand that there would be for people to read in English, that, that longing to read God's Word in a language that they actually, it was the language of their heart, that they could understand. And they would do almost anything to get God's Word into their hands. So imagine sneaking around, trying to even just read a snippet of the Bible and having someone say, where have you been sneaking out to every night, little Johnny? I better not hear that you are out running with the wrong crowd of those English Bible readers. Like it just doesn't even seem to make sense in our world. These people, they were incredibly creative and they would often smuggle Bibles into England using all sorts of different means. Occasionally they would, they would stuff them into bales of cotton, smuggle them in other ways, like putting uh, Bibles into bags that are full of flour. And ironically, the biggest buyers of Tyndale's Bibles were the king's men. That's right. The king's men would buy up as many English Bibles as they could, but not because they wanted to read them, but instead because they wanted to burn and destroy them. They wanted to burn and destroy all of Tyndale's Bibles. Well, Tyndale, he's a good businessman, and he would simply take all the profits from, from all the Bibles that he's selling to these king's men, and then he would take it and reinvest it and use it to print more Bibles, uh, to get the Word of God out. And so unfortunately, because what he was doing was considered illegal, Tyndale was on the run for 11 years of his life. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But imagine for you, waking up every single morning, knowing that people were hunting you down, trying to kill you, simply because you wanted to help other people experience the Word of God. That's what Tyndale experienced. Day after day, and week after week, and month after month, and year after year, for 11 years. He was on the run. Because people were trying to execute him. And sadly, they eventually caught up with him. And they incarcerated him for about 500 days before they finally decided in the year 1536 to burn him at the stake. Now, there has been an awful lot of burning at the stake in our history. I really wish that it wasn't so. But that is our history. Maybe we can learn from that and how we can engage with other people. His last words, though, were a prayer to God, which will, people were going to remember forever. Oh, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Three years later, 1539, God answered that prayer. Not only did the King of England allow the printing of the Bible in the English language, but he actually helped to fund it, setting the Word of God free. Think about this. Remember all the people all along this path who have died, gave their lives fighting with everything in them to help God's living and active word be available to you to put it in your hands. And sadly, so many people today, they shaka, they neglect God's word. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
And sadly, so many people neglect God's word. They just don't want to have any part of it. They take it for granted. They, they, they see it as something other than it is. And that has been me. That's what I've done. I have done that. How about you? Have you neglected God's word? Has that been something that's been part of your life? It's so important that we engage with the Bible because this is the word of God. These are God's words. It is living. It is active. It transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus, the word becoming flesh. Jesus, the word of God, to know him, to serve him, to follow him, we must read his word. And yet, so many people neglect it. But, but it's not just to feed on his word, it's to try and spend time seeking looking to grow a relationship with Jesus. The why of reading the Bible is all about the who. It's not just for knowledge, but for relationship. It's not just for requirement, but for relationship. Not because of guilt, but because of friendship. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Reading the Bible, reading the Word, is spending time intentionally seeking, getting to know Jesus, earnestly pursuing Him. Let me just close with this. Psalm 119. I delight in your decrees, and I will not, I will not neglect your word. Father, thank you for what you, for the, for the, for the thousands and thousands of people that you have worked through, those leaders throughout history, what they have done in order for us to hold your living word in our hands. And right now as we're praying, many of us recognize that we've been neglecting the Word of God. We want to make it an active part of our daily life this year. So Father, I thank you for the deep desire that my friends are showing even right now to commit to know you through your Word. God, I pray that everyone that you have been speaking to today would have a new passion, an earnestness to seek you daily. Not out of some ritualistic, religious, oh, I got to do this to be a good Christian kind of thing, but God, out of a deep, longing a hunger to know you, to know your truth and your glory and your power. And so God, we commit as your family of believers to seek you. And God, we thank you in advance for all the lives that are going to be changed because we are learning to know you. We are in pursuit of you, following you, and doing your will. Change our heart, oh God. Help us to see as you see, so that we can then do as you say. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.